Kia ora, I'm Craig Cooper, Director Arts at Asia New Zealand Foundation, and welcome to this episode of Asia Insight. In 2020, with international borders closed and the ongoing cancellation of many arts events across the country, the Asia New Zealand Foundation commissioned 10 artists to create three-minute digital works. These pieces would not rely on the need for people to connect in person. Creatively, artists could work separately if necessary, even from different parts of the world. And even the audience could experience the work remotely, in this case, social media channels were the primary means of distribution. But while the normal relationship between artists and audiences was restricted, the works would still be able to reflect an enduring connection between New Zealand artists and Asia. Today, I'm talking with one of those artists. John Williams has worked as a documentary photographer since the 1990s, and today he combines his professional practice with work in the education sector, with his photography, he has a particular interest in the area of faith, ritual, and worship. For the In Touch Commission, John adapted his 2016 exhibition, Pilgrimage. John, welcome. Thank you. Great to have you here. It's great to actually uh, be together again after uh, some delay, I guess, in actually <laughs> coming together uh, for the very reasons I've, I've just discussed. Uh, the The pandemic has uh, obviously affected artists across the board. How's it been for you? Um, I guess I was lucky enough to have been in India in 2019 um, and just got back to New Zealand um, sort of middle of March then. And of course, a year later, it was impossible to travel anyway so I think I just sort of you know managed snuck to in. Snuck in, sneak in there just before the the bad stuff happened I suppose yeah 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 so you were you were able to keep that that international work happening but since since then how's it been yeah well uh, most of my friends who you know I, I bumped into a, a fellow photographer and friend today and he was with one of his first questions he was you know got any plans any you know for trips to India, and I'm like, well, mm, not just yet. Maybe we'll just sort of see how things play out there a little while. Still you know. a little tentative to sort of to yeah. go overseas. Um, I think it's just because I mean, there's just so many ebbs and flows, and and you know, I, I have friends there, um, and I you know, while we were in lockdown and and the pandemic was you know raging around the world, I was watching how it unfolded in India and how they were, and checking in with them. To see how they were, and and as far as I'm aware, everyone seems to have escaped unscathed as well. But um, you know, it was certainly, uh, you know, you watch that some of that footage from India where they were going through some of the waves of it, and it looked pretty, um, you know, a pretty sort of awful place to be at that time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm really curious to talk to you more about your connection with India, um, obviously, but. I wonder, just to start, I'd be really interested to to hear you talk us through a little bit about your sort of professional journey as you, as you became a photographer. I mean, I was lucky enough, I suppose, to have trained, if you use that phrase these days, um, in, in a polytech environment um, here in Wellington. I went to Wellington Polytech in the uh, sort of the early uh, to mid-90s, and, and that was really... I suppose some of the tutors I had there and, you know, the, their major interest was in documentary photography and that sort of became mine, the sort of area that I wanted to specialise in, I suppose, really. And um, what happens once you get spat out of an institution, and I'm sure it's the same for, you know, young graduates uh, these days, is that you kind of are floundering for a little while, you know, and, and you go off and you do a bit of everything. 
and um, what other things did you do well you know to these days i still do some of these occasionally sure. you know, there's, the, there's the odd uh, you know wedding photography sure. um you know some magazine work for um some portraiture or something that might be in a magazine did a lot of sports photography early on as well um you know some advertising work a bit of everything you should just sort of throw your hand in and try a bit of everything you have to be a sort of a bit of a gp sure you know in new zealand and so sort of in, in the midst of all that, you know, I was still doing little documentary projects of my own because you have to keep your, you kind of, you know, you have to keep doing those things really. And um, so I carried on uh, doing a few of those things. And then I, that, that was when I kind of, uh, about five or six years after after leaving Polytech, I headed overseas to India for the first time and, mm-hmm. and kind of started this ball rolling really in this well, I guess it's really still a 20-year project now, really. Wow. So India was your first overseas f- photographic Yeah, I mean, I'd travelled overseas um, prior to that, um, mm-hmm. you know, as a, a young New Zealander, you know, overseas OE, you know, sort of thing. But it was my first sort of major photographic kind of trip. I didn't want to go and wander around India photographing street photographs of India or travel photographs of India or whatever it might be. I, I went with the idea of going to Varanasi to photograph this set of photographs. You know, that was my that was the aim. So how did that come about? It was a kind of wet, cold Friday and I was sort of uh, had the TV on at home and there was a, a, a program on a Canadian TV documentary about death in various cultures in the world. And, and it travelled all over the world. It went to came to New Zealand. There was some footage from here, and it was in Mexico and, you know, all over the place. And there was some footage from Varanasi of, I guess, what we would commonly call or think of as a, a hospice where people go to die. And it was the one that I ended up in photographing in. So it was... Uh, I saw this footage and was kind of quite... You know, I was transfixed by it, really, I suppose. And and so then I just started to research that as a as an idea... Where it happened, how it happened, who you know, how this thing sort of all came about. Really, how, where did you go, and what was it like there? Really, and so was it something about um, sort of an exploration you wanted to make about death and and that sort of ritual that led you to Varanasi, or was there something in Varanasi that really sort of sparked your interest about well, this kind of process? I'd already been photographing things of a religious nature, so uh, I should. I guess add that I'm not particularly religious myself, but I find other people's religious um, beliefs, you know, fascinating. And I'd already been photographing things like that here in New Zealand, and I saw this, and this it seemed to me to be almost the ultimate belief that if you go, you, you believe that if you go and die in this place, that you ins- escape this process of reincarnation and you go and be part of God. And it was sort of the ultimate belief, sort of manifest. You know, there it was visually; you could see it. And so I think it was that that created the interest for me. You know, wow. So. Could you explain to me a bit more about that, that process? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with the location, but I guess I'm less familiar with the, the philosophy, the hmm. religion behind it. And, yeah, just hearing you talk about it now. Well, could you tell me a bit more about I'm it? I'm certainly yeah. no expert in Hinduism. Um, <laughs> but um, the belief is that, um, that well, m- most of us are familiar with, you know, the, the belief that you will be reincarnated in the kind of Hindu um, philosophy. And the belief is that while you've got this chance, while you're a human, that you're kind of in control of things. So you should live a good life and all this, these sorts of things so that your next reincarnation is good. But also while you're in, you're in, you kind of have agency, I guess, as a human, that you can control your death to some extent. So the belief is that if you die in particularly in Varanasi, Varanasi is the, the you know, kind of the most auspicious place that you can do this. 
if you die within the old city boundaries of Varanasi, that you can escape this process of reincarnation forever. Wow, simply by being in that location? Yeah, by dying in that location, yeah. Um, And so hence it's referred to as a good death. And so historically people had travelled from around you know, the, the neighbouring area and, and up to possibly, you know, a few hundred kilometres away to Varanasi and would have historically died on the banks of the river somewhere um, with their family, you know, stayed there for a few days and, and then died, been cremated in Varanasi and then, you know, escaped this process. And of course, you know, Varanasi is quite a big city, you know, it's grown. So there were several of these sort of what we might think of as a hospice. Uh, people call them um, houses for the dying and various other phrases for them. I think CNN called them death hotels. Mm-hmm. Not Perhaps not the best title for mm-hmm. an article, but anyway. And so there were a few of those established over the years. And then, and there are still only a couple of those in existence today. And they're not altogether sure how many people these days simply travel to Varanasi as a family stay in a cheap hotel with a relative, their relative dies, they cremate them, they go. There's no actual, the police don't have a kind of figure on that number. But it is still thought of as the kind of auspicious way to end your life. So Wow. Mm-hmm. So I guess given given your practice and your interest in that area, this was a natural kind of place for you to go it, it, uh, and, and to and to work and to, to, to document. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess so. I mean, it seemed... Uh, looking back, it seems that, that it was a, a crazy idea, but, um, you know, <laughs> turn up with this. Was know. it a crazy idea? Yeah, I think it was. Well, looking, well, not when I was 20 years younger, no. <laughs> well, now, why now do you think it was, it was crazy? Because um, it sounds really interesting. Well, I mean, I couldn't really organise very much before I went. So I mean, the best I would managed to do was I found a, a Canadian uh, researcher, I found his um, PhD thesis that was published into, in, as a book. Um, and his field research was in one of these hospices. And so uh, he'd spent 18 months in Varanasi. Um, he was a gerontologist studying this, written it up as a PhD. I managed to get a copy of that. Uh, this is, you know, kind of 1998. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the internet's there, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. not fantastic, perhaps. Um, read it and got in touch with him through his publishers. And uh, he sent me not an email, but an actual letter you know, on like typed, well, signed. You know, so still, you're still in New Zealand when yeah, you get that letter? Yeah, I get this letter and wow. he says, you know, like, it's a great idea, you know, um, when you go there you'll you'll need a, an interpreter and, you know, this is the guy I use, you can find him by, you know, going here and asking around for him and, and that's what so I did. So you turn up, you didn't have the, you couldn't contact the interpreter, no. so you, you yeah. had to follow these so instructions. So li- literally I flew to India, you know, with a... Wow collection of cameras and a lot of film and all this kind of stuff and then travelled from you know New Delhi to Varanasi and spent a few days trying to find my way around Varanasi for, and then And this was your first time in India? Yeah absolutely. Your first time in Asia? Uh, yes yeah. I think so yeah I'd been into Europe before Wow uh, so what were your impressions when you arrived? I can remember the first time I arrived in Varanasi and it was early morning I caught the overnight train and got there in the morning it was 6 o'clock in the morning or something like that and it was I don't know it was like a seeing, you know, back in time there were people sleeping on the roadside and, you know, under a blanket and whatever and it was just, you know, like 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning people just sort of waking up and um, getting a start in the day, I guess, and it was just like, oh my, wow, it's like, you know, it's like this, right? Mm. It's bizarre, you know. Mm. So um, so I'd spent a few days there just trying to get accustomed to the noise and the 
heat and it was you know april april sort of time so you know early summer so it was reasonable getting reasonably warm and um just trying to figure out what was where and and you know and this is all this is you know sort of contrast that to the last time i'm i was there in 2019 you know 20 years later and i'm whatsapping people and so there's you, been a huge change. In yeah, the time you know, you have, you've got yeah. Google Maps. You're trying to find something. You just look it up on, in your smartphone and walk, or, you know, whatever, and or ring someone and message them and meet them. You know, this is there's none of that. Yes. you have the Lonely Planet guidebook. Yes. you know that that's what you have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, and so so you've you've had this engagement there for for twenty years, which is incredible. And so, what are some of those observations you've got over that that period? Well, I guess just how much things have changed. And so, I mean, in that twenty years, I've visited India six times in that twenty-year span, and um, every time I go, I go to Varanasi to. Um, so I'm either passing through Varanasi and I stop off for a couple of days, or I might go and stop off for a week, or I might stay for a, a month or so. It it sort of de- depends a little bit on the trip. And every time I go, I go to visit the people at the hospice that I was photographing at because they're sort of family friends now. So wow. I've, I drop in. I feel somehow they would know I was in the area. I don't, you know, of course, they, <laughs> it's a complete fallacy, but that's how I feel. Like somehow they would know I was passing through or wow. something. Wow. So I, dro- I drop in to see them. And, and it's um, so n- not only, I think, can I look at, the, I guess, the changes that you see as you walk around, you know, virtually anywhere in India. Uh, but I can see the changes in that one family as well. So, you know, the, the, the vast technological changes, as I said, you know, there was, I had to copy the Lonely Planet when I was first got there, and now you've got a phone and a mm. smartphone mm. and an mm. iPad and a whatever, you know, to navigate your way through mm. things, book tickets online and sure. all that kind of stuff. And so uh, do you sense that, um, you know, in terms of those beliefs that you you were just sort of talking us through, which was fascinating, do you get a sense that that's changing in India? Yes, I, I mean I think they are. I think they've they've you know in that twenty year span they've become very modern very quickly. Everyone has a cell phone. You know, you're on a bus now and the phone rings and some sixty year old grandmother pulls it out of a sari and starts talking to someone. You know, so technology is everywhere, and of course all of their population is increasing. Um, so their cities are getting bigger. And so, you know, in Varanasi, people are, are, for instance, buying property on the other side of the river now, which they weren't really doing before. You know, like we are, you know, in our cities, trying to cram more houses into a um, an already sort of um, fixed space, I suppose. And so there is this shift in, in 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 the pace of modern technology and how Western things have become as well. But I think that I feel, I think, reasonably fortunate with the, the people that um, certainly that I've met or I've interacted with mostly, they seem to be reasonably traditional and quite devout. And I think that that is changing, but I think that there is still kind of a core of people who, you know, like with quite um, firm beliefs in, in, you know, Indian religion. And And when you say changing, in, in what sense? Well, I think, you know, the modern, perhaps the modern younger people are more flexible, perhaps, you know, they, they you know, there's that thing, of, I guess there's that thing in all, for all um, generations where you're you want to be slightly different from your parents or your grandparents so you perhaps you know you embrace you know western technology perhaps or whatever it might be you know we all, I think we all do it everyone everyone in the world does it. it's not mm. just not just in india you say you know you're a person that doesn't have strong beliefs but how has spending 20 years or, or traveling backwards and forwards for 20 years 
has that changed you in some way? I think the thing that some of the other times I've I've been to India, I've been to other religious festivals as well. So every time I go there, it's for a, it's to do with some kind of religious festival fair or something rather that's on. Um, so I've been to the Kummela to photograph that, um, which is you know a hundred k's away from Baranasi. So I do a bit of both while I'm there. But I think what's happened, perhaps for me personally, um, I don't know that my religious beliefs have, have changed dramatically. I, I'd, I'd still say that I'm not religious, but I kind of think that, you know, it's, it's certainly opened me up. But, you know, there's this kind of, I guess, picture that people have of, you know, a photographer, you know, running around with a camera photograph. But realistically, when you're photographing something like this, it's that those moments where you've got the camera at the eye and you're actually taking pictures, are, there are, you know, there may be five minutes of the day. Most of the time you're sitting around waiting for not much to happen and inevitably having conversations with people in my broken Hindi and someone's broken English or, or someone's actually fantastic English at times. And I'm all too happy to have a conversation. Um, and, you know, they, people want to know where I've come from, why I'm there and what do you believe in. And so you have those conversations with people. And that's, I guess that's how you learn, you know, what people believe in really and mm. um, and what kind of commonalities perhaps we have as as humans and so um, what's that meant for you i mean i think that's um i've always thought that it's uh, it's a great privilege uh, that you you get to sit in in a room with someone's dying uncle uh, grandmother grandfather or, or father whatever it is and um, have a conversation with with someone while you know there's a good, like the fact that they've let you in there anyway and you know, if they've got questions, I think you're sort of duty bound to try your best to answer them. You know, and so it, it, I've always thought of it as a privilege to be in that situation, and to be able to a take the photographs in, in the first place, but b have this interaction with people. And that interaction is, it might be half an hour long, and and they might be gone, um, or you might be there. My experience certainly, you might. I'm there and I'm photographing someone for an hour. And I go go away. It's five or six o'clock in the evening. Come back the next day. And they're, they're not there anymore. They're, they're, their relatives died in the night, and they've taken them off. They've been cremated. They're, wow. they're gone. You know. So, so what would you say to somebody, you know, a, a New Zealander who comes up to you and, and says, "Oh, I hadn't been to India, but I really want to go, and I really want to go to this place I've heard about called Varanasi." Yeah, go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that um, I think you either love or you hate India. And I think that even if you love India, you can love and hate it in the same day. So even, I mean, I, I quite like it. You know, I, f I find it a very interesting place uh, to be. And um, there's, no, there's no reason not to go, I, I think. It's just such a massive country with such a vast, you know, difference between, you know, one end of the country and the other end of the country. So you can't see it all. Uh, I mean, my advice would be, I mean, by all means, go and, and just... Don't try and race around. Just take some time wandering around, you know. Would you say go to Varanasi? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it is a crazy place. But it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it is it is a very interesting city. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess I didn't fully appreciate the, you know, the, the duration of the engagement you've had. You yeah. Know, that's, um, that's really fascinating. Yeah, well, so some, a few of the other trips I've, that I've, I've gone, I mean, I've, I've been twice to the to the Kumela, which happens every six years in, Allah in Allahabad, which is about 100 k's away from Varanasi. So, so that's a festival? Yeah. A festival the, celebration? It, it is the biggest congregation of people in the world at one time. So I'd been to Varanasi 
twice. And then in, I think it was 2007, there was the half version of this festival. On the, and so I went to that. So on the busiest day, there were 20 million people there. In, in one, one, in one, one place. city? Well, it's, uh, it's down on the river. So three rivers meet there. There's the Ganges, the Yamuna, and the Saraswati, which is a mythical underground river. And where the three rivers meet is the most auspicious place to bathe. And so it's run as a lunar calendar for it's got slightly longer each time they have it it's a, runs for about 50ish days and there are six major or auspicious bathing days spread throughout that 60 days and so the local or the state council and the um the national government build the infrastructure for this festival so it's it's down on the river floodplain so every year it floods there completely so they put road in bridges over the rivers power lines, water, sanitation. They put all this infrastructure in. They build like a tent city. And so I went to the, well, to the half version, 20 million people on the busiest day. And then six years later, I went to the full version, which was busier, uh, with on the busiest day an estimated 30 to 40 million people. Um, so, so just to get this clear, that the, the half version has 20 million. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, so that's the quiet day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so go on the quiet day, there's only 20 million people. Well, I did notice that the between the half version and the full, it was noticeably busier. When, when there's 30 to 40 million people, you know, you do notice that difference. You do notice the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, the bathing is the central kind of ritual yeah. within that. Yeah. What else is going on around it? This massive tent city sort of uh, and built there. And all I must say that, that one of the things that's always struck me as quite funny wasn't it? was that there was like continuous 24-7 announcements over a loudspeaker system that you can hear. It's all in Hindi, of course, so I mean, I, I struggle to understand it. And so figuring out exactly what is going on and who's doing what is quite difficult. You can just wander around. And so so I... I did, you know, you just sort of and so 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 describe to me what you what you see there. I mean, there's so it's it was set up originally for for the um, I guess what we might the akara of if you think of sadhus, sadhus belong to an akara or a sect, and so all of the akaras of of the would come there and they would have their big camps and all the sadhus would turn up um, and so they, they you know they they're all there for. For the, usually the length of the festival, they argue amongst themselves on who's going to bathe first on which bathing day and all this kind of stuff. There's all the stuff that goes on that you're not quite privy to. And then on those bathing days, they are the first people into the water, um, at, which is at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. of that day. And then everyone else is sort of allowed after them kind of thing. So on those days, people turn up. People, some people, families just turn up for a day or two. They turn up, they catch a train. Uh, or arrive by, um, I guess these days by car or something or other. Turn up, bathe in the river, pack up, buy a few. It's like a fair there; you can buy one of everything. Buy a few trinkets. So the stalls, the yeah, food stalls, food stalls and trinket stalls and, 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 and religious paraphernalia. Mm-hmm. Get some of that and then go home again. Some people come go and stay for longer periods, and there are institutions that set up their own camps where you know they have people coming in and for a few days and then leaving and. Sort of constant stream of visitors kind of thing and there are um big um some big camps where they have uh where there are yogis who are you know 
there's religious services on, you know, in the day or the evening or whatever, and you can go and sit and enjoy those if you want to. Or go bathe in the river, yeah. Having had exposure to, to so much of, of India, so much of these kind of practices and so on, do you have any observations about, you know, the differences between, you know, people's approach to, to life and to their worldview in India compared to New Zealanders? I think there's perhaps more similarities than differences, really. I mean, one of the things that seems to be very important is family seems to be very important, and you know, anywhere in India, and um, people come to these festivals with with their fam with their family in tow, and so one of the things that always strikes them very odd is that you're there on your own. Um, you know, they're like, well, where is your wife or your? Where's everyone else? Yeah, where are your children? You know, or whatever. And then, of course, they, they'll ask me if I'm religious, and I say, well, no, not really. Uh, and they're like, you don't believe in God? And I'm like, well, you know. And, and when so, they ask that question, are they asking, do you believe in the, the Hindi? Well, any God. Just, so just, just God. a general. Just, yeah, just, just God. God. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. the question. Yeah, just they've got enough of their own God. Yes, right. <clears throat> but, that, I mean, that's the, you know, that kind of beautiful thing about Hinduism, that they incorporate other gods into their own collection of gods you know so you walk past a a shop that's uh, you know on the high street somewhere that's selling you know framed pictures of ganesh and hanuman and shiva and whatever and there'll be a framed picture of jesus and um i remember once going but it's jesus and they went well jesus is god too so just you, another just another version. one we'll just come on in you know the more the more the merrier kind of thing so so that sounds really sort of you know embracing of yeah yeah everybody i wanted to sort of focus a little bit on the exhibition pilgrimage um and then and then turn uh to the the in touch digital version of that but maybe just to start with the exhibition because i mean i guess the the process behind uh what was the the digital work in the end um actually came from quite a quite a long Period, you know, there's a, there's a background to that, and it actually came from um, a, a physical exhibition of um, of photographs that you had taken in Varanasi. Um, you've told us a lot about Varanasi and the the kind of context there, but can you tell us a little bit about the specifics of that uh, creating that exhibition? Well, I guess the the idea for the exhibition was to kind of try and bring several collections together, so under the kind of the title of pilgrimage, so. There was there were several collections. There were some images from the Kumela, uh there because that's the pilgrimage to go to that festival. There were some images from Sri Lanka as well. I'd gone to Adams Peak in Sri Lanka, which not a good idea to climb a mountain in, at night um, to be on the top of the mountain for the sunrise. Um, and that's a, a pilgrimage to climb that mountain. Um, so there were some images from that, and then there were um, some two sets of images from Varanasi as, as part of it as well. You know, it's, a, it's kind of major undertaking to sit down and kind of collect all that that uh, work together um, and, you know, and, and physically make the exhibition, really. Yeah, it, it was quite, the, it's quite, turns into quite the physical task, you know. I, I made the frames myself. I printed the prints myself. I scanned the negatives and turned them into digital files. You know, it's quite a, a lot of work, really. And then you have the exhibition, and I, and I think most artists or photographers would, would feel this way as well, that you have the exhibition and the exhibition has its life and then it's over and, and, and it's it's gone, you know, and, and you write it on your CV and comes in useful for, you know, applying for a, a grants and, and things. But really, you, that's it, its life then. You, you're like, well, what, what am I 
still doing with this, this these pictures, you know, because I'm not sure I've ever felt that it's complete. And so I've kind of just kept on adding pictures to it. As I said, there was some images from Sri Lanka and um, more recently some images from Thailand. Uh, I went to Thailand for my honeymoon and managed to drag my wife to the um, vegetarian festival in Phuket where people get pierced um, through the face and march through um, the city. So I photographed that for about 10 days. I, I think I'm drawn to these things that are quite extreme um, you know the, the kind of the sort of the ultimate example of faith, or the or the or an extreme example of it. So, you know, having your face pierced with swords and walking through the street seems quite an odd thing um, to me. But um, you know, those sorts of things attract me to photograph them, and so I just keep collecting these things, and it's an ever expanding body of work I suppose mm. really I it, haven't yet found a, a, a sort of an ultimate vehicle for the for the whole lot of it once I'd had the exhibition part of some of the images from the exhibition were at at a second venue in Varanasi and uh, I'd always wanted to go back and spend more time there photographing um, there so that was the the trip that I did in 2019. I had some funding from Creative New Zealand to go and spend a month in Varanasi photographing at that location. It took about three weeks to get permission to photograph at that location of the month, but um, but luckily I built in a few w- weeks on the end so that I had a, a few weeks extra. And so the work that I was able to create in the In Touch Commission was kind of like you know, it's the, the the latest photographs in that are only a, a year old or something rather than it's quite. So it started in 1999, but there are pictures in that in that work from 2019. So it's kind of it's got you know work from from both from that entire period in it really. So and what was it like going from, you know, you had that physical exhibition, but obviously you know you had the photographs as a as a resource. But then, with the digital art commission, it was it was very specific. It was mm. about creating a digital work of only three minutes, um, and the rationale for that was so that we could distribute it easily through you know, yep. social media channels, um, and you know make it accessible to more people. How was that? I mean, it was great. I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I, I think that the thing that's good about it, I, you know, I guess I'm I'm you know I'm not a digital native, so maybe I I'm I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm like, really, does it work like that? You know. The thing about the physical a physical exhibition is that after it's been up for six weeks or whatever it is, it comes down. You put it in boxes. It's in my it's in my roof. You know that's where it exists mostly. It's still there. You know it's in boxes in my roof. But the good thing about the digital artwork is that it goes up. You know it's, it's with a bit of fanfare and a page to go with it. You know and pushed out with social. But it's still there. It's there, right? Yeah, now. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's still there. So yeah. it has this uh, this kind of life of its own, uh, uh, you know, which you're not aware of necessarily because, you know, if you don't know how many people are looking at it, you don't check it, you know, you sort of forget about it after, you know, is it still there? Oh, it is still there, you know. But it is still there. That's quite an interesting kind of thing compared to the, uh, you know, the physical nature of of a physical exhibition where it comes and goes, that a digital work still exists, albeit in the digital ether somewhere. It's still there, and and it's still uh, searchable and relevant, and you know, yeah. So I think that's actually quite a valuable um, part of it. And I was quite lucky in that while I was in Varanasi in 2019, I'd taken with me a, a, a quite good field recorder, 
and I'd recorded the priest's chant in, um, in, in the hospice that I photographed in. And then when I made the, um, the digital work, uh, I had a friend who's a sound engineer and, and we put the tracks together and made a soundtrack to go with the pictures that was recorded in the field, you know, in, in situ. Well, so I can it, actually play some of that now, I believe. <laughs> So tell us, tell us about that. Weirdly, whenever you plan anything in India, it never quite works out like you think it would or should. So I was visiting the um, the hospice uh, where I'd, I'd photographed um, most of the of, of those pictures, and not much happened. It was kind of winter, late winter, early spring. You know, there was not very many people at the hospice. My friend who lives there was away. There wasn't, you know, there was kind of not much happening. But every evening, so there wasn't very much to photograph. But every evening, the priests sit down and and chant a puja ceremony and chant Hare Krishna, Hare Rama. It, because it's believed that it's important to hear the name of God as you're about to die. So they do it anyway. So I, I there wasn't very much to photograph. But I thought, well, no, I... I I have to record it. So I sat down and recorded it the best I could. And then with the aim of someday using that, it's the perfect soundtrack as far as I'm concerned. It is. It, it, it absolutely is. And it, it just enhances that whole experience. I mean, what you craft, though, over three minutes is a is a kind of a narrative, though, isn't it? Mm. So was that a different thing for you to do? Or do you feel you sort of do that with an exhibition in a more general sense anyway? Yeah, I mean, it's similar to do, doing it for an exhibition. I mean, there's... A, there's the terrible dilemma of editing, you know, this picture versus that picture. You know, I'm old enough to th- think of editing as I like this picture rather than that picture, rather than post-processing, as it were. <laughs> so there's a, and you never think you've got it right, and you're never sure. And you ask some people, and they suggest one thing, and then so someone else suggests another thing, and you, you know, you're back at wherever you started, kind of thing. So you just do the best you can, I think, really. But yeah, there is the kind of, I guess, there's the scope to build a, a longer version and a, and a shorter version, which is what I ended up doing, simply because it, uh, I could, I think, really. So the pandemic obviously made all these connections, these international connections, very, very difficult. But it feels that your connection to India um, in particular has has remained just as strong. What is the future for you now? What's <laughs> what's next? Uh, yes, well, my... Fr- my friends in India always ask me, when are you coming to India? I'm like, well, I don't, when are you coming to yeah, India? <laughs> well, I don't know, yeah. Um, I might give it a little while sure. to settle down. Uh, but, uh, well, I do have plans to go back. Yeah, I mean, 2025, I think, is the next half version of the Mammoth Festival. <laughs> Just the 20 million. Yeah, well, you know, it's got more, it gets more popular each time they have it. So it sounds like you are going back, though. Maybe 30 million. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, I would be keen to go to that and to obviously go and visit my friends in, in Varanasi and, uh, and just sort of see what's happening there as well. And in terms of your, your practice, in terms of your photography, are there um, some ambitions you have around what you could document next i'd like to photograph i guess something uh, and it doesn't necessarily matter where this is i mean i I think it would probably most likely be in asia but i'd I'd certainly like to 
photograph some aspect of Islam. I don't know where and I don't know what exactly. But it came to me some time ago, you know, that I would have to be out there photographing every day of my life to photograph everything that there is to do with religion. You can't do it. So it's just a matter of finding little projects or little areas or little some aspect of something, you know, that you can kind of man, put into some sort of manageable chunk of a few weeks or, a, well, in my case, 20 years, I suppose, so that I can kind of just keep adding to to the whole thing. Um, so certainly Asia's, yeah, there's, there's lots of things that, that interest me to, to go and photograph there, absolutely. Fantastic. Look, John, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, it's been a real thrill for me um, being familiar with your work and then to finally meet you in person. It's been fantastic. So thank you for coming in and, and talking with us today and wish you all the best for the future projects. Thank you. No problems. Thank, thank you. you. I've been talking to John Williams. That's it for this edition of Asia Insight. I'm Craig Cooper. Thanks for listening. Kaki te anō.